Go ahead and open up to John 15. Um, not to scare you guys, but I have more notes than typical, so uh, got a lot of ground to cover. John 15. So, um, John 15 is uh, right in the middle of what is referred to as the farewell discourse. So, in John 13, we saw Jesus tell his disciples, I'm leaving, right? They didn't quite understand that, and he began to explain, um, and they uh, felt pretty down and, and not quite certain of what their future would hold, right? And so then... In the midst of that, you know, Judas leaves. He's dismissed by Jesus um, to go do what he was going to do. Obviously, we know he would betray um, Christ. And, and in John 14, we, in the, the beginning part of the farewell discourse, we see Jesus um, comforting the disciples. He, in the beginning of that, he promises that um, it'll be worth it, that he has to leave to go prepare a place for them, that he's going to uh, prepare heaven and that for those who trust in him, heaven would be our ultimate home. And then also, the latter half of 14, he promises the coming of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would come. Uh, we know that that would be at Pentecost, that he would come, and that all believers uh, would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and that he would lead us and guide us throughout all of our days. Then we go to John 15, and we see a transition. So it kind of goes from comfort to um, further preparation, right? So in 14, again, he's comforting the disciples, and in 15, he switches gears just a little by preparing them for his death by reminding them what it looks like for them to be faithful disciples. And this morning, that's what we're going to talk about is fruitful discipleship. And, and John 15 is not a passage that is obscure to most people. Um, if you've been in or around church, you've probably heard part of John 15 at least, um, it is a fairly popular and, and quite often um, looked to text. And it's one that just has so much to unpack. And, and I'm going to try to do my best to do that. Um, but like I said, I do have a little bit more um, ground to cover than typical. So we're going to pray that, that God allows us to do that um, with clarity. So again, John 15 is this beginning point where Jesus is instructing his disciples um, what a true disciple looks like, that, that true disciples are fruit-bearing individuals, that there are certain evidences in their life that shows that they are being fruitful to what he has called them to do, um, and us as well. And the main idea is this. It's pretty short and simple. True disciples bear fruit. Now, if you will, let's um, pray together, and then we're going to dive right in. Our Father, once again, we come um, in prayer to you, God, to ask that you be with us in these few moments to show us yourself in your word that you honor yourself as we work through this text. Father, to, again, just kind of forget about all the other things that are happening and going on. 
so that we can simply hear your word and let it just soak deep into who we are. And we ask that you would just bless the reading of your word. One of the joyful things to know as your children is the promise that your word never returns void. That it's your word. And as we look at these verses this morning and we begin to look at our lives, let us be honest. Are we being fruitful disciples? Are we even actual Christians? Or have we just simply, Father, bought into the the cultural lie that everyone is a Christian? Or that if we fit a certain mold, then we can label ourselves as followers of Jesus. So let us be able to look at our hearts in, in view of the text and let the the word just both encourage and convict us this morning. Where there's encouragement that's needed, we rejoice now in your provision for that. And where there's conviction, may there be repentance that follows. So that we could say we're being faithful to who you have set us apart to be. God, we ask that you would just be with our time. That we would truly hear from you through your word this morning. That everything said would bring honor and glory to your name. That you would speak through me with and through your Holy Spirit. That's, it's not my words, God, but it's the word that you would have for all of us to hear in this time. And we ask all of this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. John 15, starting in verse 1, we start with this point that abiding in Christ is fruitful. Starts in verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Seven times in John's gospel, we see what are referred to as I am statements. This is the last of those. In chapter 6, we see Jesus claim, he says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he says, I am the gate. Also in chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Each of those paving the way and affirming. That Jesus is the true Messiah. He's not a Messiah. He's not a good teacher. He's not simply a prophet. He is the Messiah. He doesn't say, I am a bread of life, or I am a light in the world, or I am a gate, or I am a good shepherd, or I am a possible way for resurrection and life, or I'm not a way, a truth, a life, but the. 
Messiah. And here he does very much the same. He is showing that he is true God of true God and that he is truly the Messiah. We know by this point that he's sitting around a table having a meal with his disciples. Um, Many refer to it as really kind of the, the leading up to the Last Supper with the bread and the wine. So when he begins to talk about the vine and the vineyard and the vine dresser, it's actually not a metaphor that's unusual, um, because that's where they're at. They're gathered around the table. And so here, um, what we see is Jesus actually refers back to Isaiah chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, hold your finger in John 15 and flip back to Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I don't think I put these on the screen, so if you don't have your Bible, just have to listen tight. Starting in verse 1, Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So Jesus is referring back to Isaiah 5, where God speaks of Israel being a vineyard that failed. It was a vineyard that was not producing in a way that it was meant to produce. And so he let the guard down. He allowed thorns and thistles and he destroyed it. And here in verse 1, we see that Jesus is the true vine and that the father is the vine dresser. In other words, it is the father who is preparing creation and all of existence for the true vine to come. That is the son to come and to work and to be fruitful. But notice what we see in verse two. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So the question is, is what grows on a vine? Branches. And the branch has one job, to bear fruit. But what happens when that branch is not bearing fruit? It's removed. In other words, those who are not bearing fruit will be cut off. Because again, true disciples will bear fruit. And we know, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And the vine dresser will do whatever is necessary to see his crop produce. God will do whatever necessary to see his disciples bear 
fruit. He will prune us. He will trim us. He will cut us. He will shape us in order that we're able to do what we were created to do. That's the vine dresser's job. Right before church, um, me and Jordan were talking about the garden and he said all the rain is and then the warmth is basically just made it a field day, if you will, for weeds. And if he doesn't do his job to take care of those in the best way possible, then his crop can't grow because they choke them out and they just provide trouble. God is the vine dresser. He works in and through our lives so that we do the work we are set apart to do. So the encouragement is this, that for the people of God, the branches that are meant to bear fruit, we are to trust in the Father. We are to trust in His working. We are to trust in the pruning. We are to trust in His leading. We know that there'll be plenty of times in our lives where we're disciplined. Hebrews says that the Father disciplines those whom He loves. We know that there are going to be times where pain comes, and a lot of that is to prepare us to see Christ and to lean into Christ and to rejoice in our glorious King. He does that because He loves us. He does it because he wants us to bear the fruit we were meant to bear. Remember, it is surely God's grace that we are not only existing, but that he calls us to be his people, his children, and that he allows us to take part in building his kingdom. And he has prepared us to do this work, and he is going to continue to work in us so that we could do the work that we were meant to do. So it's clear Already in two verses that true disciples are meant to bear fruit. The question is how? Only by abiding in Christ. The branch can't bear fruit without the vine. You know, if I've I've got grape vines growing on the kind of back and side of my yard and they're a mess because I don't know what I'm doing. Like, the thought of pruning those terrifies me because I actually enjoy them and I don't want to destroy them. But if I went out and I just started pruning, and the main vine that's coming up, the main stalk that's coming up from the ground, if I just detached all the vines from it, are my vines going to produce grapes? No. So in the only way that we are to produce as the disciples of Christ, as followers of Christ, is to be abiding in the vine. We can't bear fruit without the vine. So the call for us is that we have to first surrender our lives to Jesus for salvation before we can abide in Him. You might say, well, I want to abide in Christ, but if you've never trusted Christ with your life, then you can't abide in Christ. It starts with repentance and confession of faith in Jesus as the Savior of the world. And surrender to Him and surrendering our lives to Him means we're submitting to following His path, trusting His ways, doing His work. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 says this, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In other words, it's Jesus who gives His Spirit to live within each 
Christian. And it's the Holy Spirit then that helps us abide in Jesus and fulfill the mission of God. So as the followers of Christ that we claim we are, we must understand that apart from him, we can do nothing. Look at verse five. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I abide in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Isaiah says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And if we're not abiding in Christ, even if we say we're doing the work of God, then we might be bearing fruit, but it's bad fruit. And bad fruit does not honor the Lord. So what then about all of those in our life, our culture, our world who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but deny him with their life? Look at verse 6. I mean, because that, that, that really is a picture of where we live, right? That our communities are filled with people who say they love the Lord, who say they're followers of Jesus, and there's not one ounce of evidence in their life that declares that they are actually followers of Christ, right? Look at verse 6. He says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's a serious warning. It's a warning that if you don't truly know Jesus, that means you have surrendered your life to Christ for salvation. And your life is not a reflection of his glory in you, then you are not saved. Period. You're just a mere branch that will be cut off and tossed into the fire and burned. So the call is then to turn from your self-righteousness, to turn from the lie and turn to Christ. Abide in Him and He will abide in you. And that's a good promise. That if we turn away from all the, the things that want to pull us away from Him, if we turn away from the sin that indwells within us, then He will abide in us. It's the beauty of what we see in Romans 10, right? I mean, in verse 9, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved, right? He doesn't say you might be saved, you will be, because it's the work of Christ that redeems. It's not our work, it's simply Christ's work. So the question is, are we abiding in Christ? Have we trusted Christ with our life? Or are we imposters? This is a quote that's not on there, but Charles Spurgeon says, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. In other words, if we're not doing the work of Christ, then Christ is not in us and we're simply imposters. We acknowledge him with our lips, but we're denying him with our lifestyle, and that is not the work of a true Christian. And so maybe that's you here today, and maybe you're like, wait a minute, I, I think I've been living a lie this whole time. The call is simple. Turn to Jesus. Quit playing the games. Because the reality is this. Heaven is real, so is hell. And the unfortunate thing is, is that for those who do not trust in Christ, it's not heaven that is our eternal reward, it's hell. And that should absolutely crush our hearts. To know that we have friends and family and neighbors who are going to spend eternity separated from the love and the grace of God. 
and many who thought that they were good because they simply claimed Jesus. True disciples bear fruit. Those who abide in Christ bear fruit. Secondly, we see then the evidence or the fruit of true disciples. Starting in verse 7, we find this. I'm going to read verses 7 through 17. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another." So what is the fruit of a true disciple? The first that we see is in verse 7. It's the fruit of prayer. So again, I will read verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's prayer. Ask whatever. This is not self-centered prayer. No, this is prayer that is rested in the will of God. It's prayer for us to conform to God's desires, to God's plans, for God's will to be done. On Wednesday nights, we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer, and right off the bat in the Lord's Prayer, we see that we should be praying in a way that would honor God, and we do that by saying, and it's your will that's to be done, not mine. Abiding in Jesus is about seeking to glorify Him in all things. And the only way that is possible is with His help. So Christians then are to spend an adequate amount of time, all of life, unceasing time in prayer so that we can learn to be conformed to the image of Jesus and find rest in doing the work of the Father. He said, verse 8, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So then, a life that honors Jesus must first be filled with unceasing prayer. It doesn't have to be filled with big words or last a long time, but it's just constantly crying out to the Father. Lead me. Guide me. Help me. I remember growing up, there would be individuals who would stand up to pray before the church, and it was like all of a sudden they reverted back to 1600s and they started preaching the King James Version. I'm not saying God's not honored in that. I'm just saying, like, 
You don't have to do that. It's not about eloquent speech. It's not about saying all the right things. That's one of the beauties of having the Holy Spirit within us and Jesus as our intercessor. It's the heart of crying out to God. I love what John Bunyan says. He says, pray often. For prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge for Satan. My, I remind you who John Bunyan was. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He was an English pastor in the 1600s who was told to not preach the gospel the way he was preaching it. He needed to conform to the Church of England. He said no. And so they put him in a tower cell prison, a prison cell in the top of a tower so that he could overlook the streets where his blind daughter would sell pots and pans to try to raise enough money so that their family could eat. And they did that to torture him. And they would come in and say, all you have to do is, you know, go against what you originally said and conform to the ways of the Church of England and we'll let you go and your little poor daughter won't have to do that. And in crying out to God, he said time and time and time again, not a chance. We are to seek the Lord in prayer constantly. But it doesn't stop with prayer. It goes on in verses 9 and 10 to obedience. It says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Immediately, we probably hear obedience and we're thinking this is, here we go, we got to, you know, live by a certain set of standards and check all these sorts of boxes. And, but obedience to the Father's love, abide, abiding in the Father's love, is not a burdensome obedience, but it is one that is full of love and absolutely overjoyed. It's delight, not duty. We get to serve because He has greatly loved us. Last week in John 14, we saw that the motivation for obedience was God's love for us in Jesus. Why is it that we serve? Why is it that we want to serve? Because we realize who we were without Christ, dead in sin, a hater of God, an enemy of God. But through the gracious work of God in Christ, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And because he has done that, we want to serve. Why? Because we're no longer the same person. We are a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Think about it. The perfect and beautiful love the Father has for His Son is the same love then that the Son gives His people, that He shows us. And if the love of the Father is the most perfect and beautiful love ever, then we can know that we are receiving the same love from the Son. And there simply is no greater love. So what are we to do as the followers of Christ, as disciples? We are to love as Christ has loved us. By being obedient. We love Him in our obedience. And in our obedience, we begin to declare the goodness of the gospel to others. To live a life. Worthy of the name of Jesus. Again, not to earn our way to Christ, but because Christ has already done the work necessary for us to be spending eternity in his Father's house in heaven. 
We love because he has first loved us. We serve because he serves us. We do his work because he has redeemed us. So then we see that a Christian's obedience to Jesus is evidence of Christ's love towards us. Then you see the flip side, right? What about those Christians who aren't living in obedience? Again, these who are declaring Jesus with their lips but denying him with their lifestyle. Those who just culturally hold the name Christian because their mamas, daddies, grandmamas, grandparents, families were associated with a church and because we might go two, possibly two, three times a year. And we're okay with people praying in public and we're okay with people making a stand for the Lord, but yet our lives look nothing like Jesus. I think scripture is clear. In that case, those individuals are not Christians. They're not people who have surrendered their life to Christ. They're just people who associate themselves with a name. But what happens to those individuals? We might be fooled, at least for a season. God's not. You know that I absolutely, I love sports, pretty much all sports, most sports. And I follow certain things really closely. One of those is college football recruiting. I know it's extremely nerdy, but I, I do. This year, there was an instance where there was a kid who had basically just put together this whole scheme. Uh, he was a football player, and he was a decent football player, and but he had schemed this whole thing. He even had his own like um, highlight film and that he was being recruited by certain schools, that he had scholarship offers from big schools, that he had narrowed it down to two really big schools. I mean, we're not talking like minor colleges. We're talking about major colleges. He even had... Um, because of all of that, he was even ranked by one of the major recruiting services as one of the top like 300 players in the country, right? His school even organized a big like ceremony where he would announce his decision and he did the whole hat like I'm going to spend the next four years at, you know, I think it was Cal, the University of California. He put his hat on, everybody's like rejoicing and making this big deal. And then all of a sudden like something happens. Cal's like, wait a minute, we don't know this kid. He had falsified the entire thing. Just because he had associated himself as a recruit and just because he had, had put the hat on didn't mean he was actually part of the recruiting class for the University of California. Likewise, just because we say we're followers of Christ doesn't mean we are. If everything in our life doesn't say that I am one of Jesus' children, if things in my life are not being done for the glory of Christ, if my attitude has nothing to, that reflects the glory of Jesus, then am I truly a follower of Christ? The answer is simply no, because true disciples bear fruit. Listen to this quote from Matt Carter. He's a pastor in Austin, Texas. He said, A disciple who doesn't obey is not a disciple. He's a fraud. If Jesus lives in you, you cannot help but produce the fruit of loving obedience. His life in you will cause you to love what he loves, 
to treasure his words and to obey, not out of duty, but out of joy. You will delight in doing what Jesus wants you to do because he lives in you and is shaping your heart to be like his. The life of a Christian is a life of joyful obedience. We want to serve the Lord. Now, there's plenty, going to be plenty of days where it's hard. And there's going to be plenty of times where the heart, where the flesh fights back and we just don't want to do things. It happens for me all the time. But the fruit of a true disciple is that the Holy Spirit begins to work in us and we repent of those sins and we wind up joyfully surrendering to the Lord's leading. So why do we live in obedience? Verses 14 and 15. We're going to skip down and we'll come back up. It says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. We're obedient Because Jesus is both king and friend. He loves us greatly. I've I've told you many times, this is not one of those situations like we see in other world religions and in other um, cultures throughout the world where you have a dictator who demands his people do things. You have a loving, serving Savior who graciously allows us to work with him for his glory. It's a joy to do the work of Christ. It is a joy to live for Christ. It might not be easy, but it will be joy-filled. Which is exactly what we see is the third evidence of the fruit of a true disciple. Joy. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The Westminster Catechism starts with this question. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I mean, our definition of obedience. So if we hear, I'm supposed to glorify God and we're supposed to do that by being obedient, then our definition is one of burden, carrying an unfortunate load. A duty, not joy, not delight. But what we find in the gospel, what we find in Christianity and following and serving Christ is that we glorify him by enjoying him. And we can only do that by being satisfied in him. Whatever the circumstances are in your life, trust that God has you there for a purpose. There are many, many Times, many days where my heart aches for something, but that, that I don't have. Only to be reminded through the Holy Spirit that God is working all things together for good. And while that is a very comforting promise, sometimes it's a hard promise to hear. 
because we want to do other things. We want to serve in other ways. We want to whatever. You fill in the blank. Your life is not my life. We're all different. But the thing that we share is that we find joy when we glorify God and He receives glory when we're enjoying Him. Why? Because Jesus is the very definition of joy. And He tells us in verse 11 that He gives us His joy. Not a joy, His joy. The same joy that took Him to the Garden of Gethsemane and cried out, God, it's, if it's possible, let this cup pass, but it's your will, not mine, be done, only to then follow on in line to the cross of Calvary and take on the wrath of God for the good of His people. That kind of joy. That we're willing to be brought low, made low for the glory of our gracious King. And because His joy has been implanted in us, our lives are to be filled with the joy of Christ. There are no joyless Christians. Will there be days of pain? Absolutely. There's going to be days when there's not a lot of joy, that there's some sorrow. But all of life cannot be joyless. If your life is just this never-ending pool of no joy and heartache and pain and brokenness, then there's a strong likelihood you've never trusted in Jesus. Now I understand that people face different battles. But Christ has just made the promise in verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my Joy, His joy would be in us and that our joy may be what? Full. There's no asterisk there. there were not, it, there's no like, unless you suffer with this or unless you battle this. No. It's impossible to not have joy when we trust in the Lord. And again, there will be plenty of difficult days ahead. There will be many painful trials, but His love, His joy never fails, it never ceases. He has put His joy in us and He has filled us to overflowing. And so maybe the question you and I need to ask is, am I filled with joy? Do I enjoy doing the work that God would want me to do? Do I enjoy serving do I enjoy living a life contrary to all my friends? Do I enjoy being mocked because I stand firm on the word of God? Do I enjoy giving up so many of life's pleasures to pursue the purity of following Christ? I want you to notice something here, right? So he starts with prayer. And then he goes to obedience, and then he goes to what? Joy. So what's immediately before joy? Obedience. So again, back in verses 9 and 10, we found this. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just 
as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Joy follows obedience. We are filled with joy when we're abiding in Christ and doing His work. In other words, our lives are to be radically different. Why? Paul told Timothy, we're new creatures in Christ. I'm not the same person I was. My desires are different. My wants have changed. There's obviously still going to be flaws because we're human, right? We still fight that daily battle against the flesh. But the overarching theme is that things are different. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. His desires become our desires. We no longer want to live for our glory alone. We want to live for His. And what's the truth of Scripture? Is that we're filled with joy when we do just that. The fourth fruit that we see, the fourth evidence here. That's given in this text. It's found in verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. So what's the fourth evidence of a true disciple? A fruit in a true disciple? It's sacrificial love. Jesus is commanding his disciples to love as he has loved. And the truth is this. I can't do this on my own. And spoiler alert, you can't either. You can't love the way that you're called to love on your own power. I can't love the way I'm called to love in my own power. It's only Christ in me. So if we're abiding in Him, and He's told us that if we're abiding in Him, then He's also abiding in us, then it's possible. Why? How is it possible? How is it possible for me to love people that I should hate? How is it possible for me to love people that I completely disagree with? Because Jesus is the very definition of sacrificial love. He left heaven. He became a man. He lived as a servant. He gave his life for his people. The innocent in place of the guilty. All so that we could be reconciled to God. And in case you missed it, we're the very anti-definition of what Christ should be loving. Scripture tells us clearly that we're enemies of God, haters of God. And God gave up everything for us in giving him us Jesus. And yet we constantly go about living around our daily lives, hating people because they're different and scorning people that disagree with us and All the while we parade around and say we're followers of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. And he's the very anti-definition of everything we seem to be. 
the beauty of all of this is this. That he calls us friend and he lays his life down to free us from the tyranny of sin. And then he declares that we are to love in the same way. And just a little side note in case we forget this pivotal point. We're all created in the Imagia Dei in the image of God. doesn't matter what we look like, how we act, where we come from, what we make, what we think, how we think, how we live. We're all created in the image of God and we're all desperately needing the saving grace of God. And the Christian life then is meant to be one of that same sacrificial love. We sacrifice our time, we sacrifice our talent, our treasure, our desires, our plans, our schedules, our routines, our dreams, our bank account, all for the glory of God and the good of others. Why? Verse 13. Because greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Folks, we have been set apart by Jesus to abide in him and to bear fruit. True disciples bear fruit. And so if you aren't bearing fruit, you need to repent, period. Quit playing some sick and twisted game thinking that you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, yeah, I know you messed up, but it's okay. You did some good stuff too. Absolutely not. Turn to Jesus. Find hope in him. Find salvation in him. Find rest in him. Find true joy in him. It's not coming from anywhere else. It's not coming from anyone else. It's not coming at all unless it comes in and through the work of Jesus Christ. So surrender your life to him and let him transform you. And I want you to know this. That there is absolutely nothing in your life that prevents him from being able to save you. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you've been through. But here's what I know. Jesus is greater. Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan theologian pastor, says this. That there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. There is nothing that you're going to do that is outside of the saving hand of Christ. If we trust in him. And we surrender to him and we allow him to mold us and shape us into the image of who he wants us to be. God-honoring, God-fearing, sacrificial, loving, obedient, praying disciples. Who then do what? Go make other disciples. Who can make other disciples and make other disciples? So I want to encourage you. If you don't know Christ. If you've just been playing the game. Repent and believe the good news of Jesus. Or maybe you're here and you are a Christian. And you realize that you've just found yourself kind of in some... rut 
the same goes for you as well. Repent and believe the good news of Jesus. And then go on as a fruit-bearing child of the King. Let's pray. Our Father, what a hopeful promise we have. That you love us despite us. And that you can save us regardless of what we've done. And that once we surrender to you, you give us all the tools necessary to do the work you would have us to do. But you don't just leave us alone after that. You indwell us and you abide in us as we abide in you so that we can do the work that you have set us apart to do. So today, God, I pray that we would repent of the lack of fruit we may be bearing. That for some of us, maybe we need to repent of our sins in general and trust Christ as Savior. But God, whatever it is and whatever in us as individuals are going through today, you know our hearts, you know our situations. And we pray and we turn it all over to you, trusting that you would do the work that needs to be done. That your will would be done, not ours. To the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray.